Oh, great. It is, it is Saturday, December the 12th. And as it is 12-12, we have an expression. And the expression is, call five and stay alive. This is the 12th month, the 12th day. So we want to put express um, work into the 12th step, which is reaching out to others. And uh, we, we have an expression in Chicago, call five and stay alive. And it'll help you kind of get out of yourself a little bit. And we need to do that all the time, but especially on 12-12, which is just, uh, just a, a great day to really concentrate on that. We have been talking about chapter five and we're about to embark on step three or the prayer for step three. But let's kind of go back as is my want and kind of review the things that we have been talking about. This is the chapter, How It Works. And in the chapter, How It Works, Bill knew that he was gonna have to describe how the program actually worked and he was gonna have to come up with the steps and he was gonna have to come up with some concepts and things that had not been mentioned before. All the material prior to chapter five is about steps one and two. Step one is the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution and more about alcoholism. Step two is we agnostics. And now we're gonna embark on the two most misunderstood steps three and four. And how we misunderstand them is we have a tendency in our zeal to overcomplicate things, to make them into something that they were never intended to be. So let's concentrate today on simplification. And let's concentrate today on reading what's in the book or seeing what's in the book and not overblowing it and amplifying it into something that goes way away from the original intent of this textbook. But let's kind of review, as I said, I wanted to do. The first page, 58 of the chapter, talks about rigorous honesty. Now, what area of my life are they talking about? Now, clearly, a very good answer to where do I need to be honest is in everything and in all manners. And I got scammed this week. Somebody got into my Amazon account and ordered a bunch of stuff uh, and I didn't authorize it. And so we had to pull it apart. And then these, these guys, I got in, I, who I thought I, I was getting in touch with them and they went on my computer and blah, blah, blah. So I've had a heck of a week with people that are not honest. And unfortunately, there are a lot of them out there, but I'm very, very lucky that between Amazon and my credit card bank, they have assured me over and over again that anything I did not order, I will not be responsible for. So when the word honesty comes up, my mind goes back to that. But what they're really talking about here, guys, is in the word honesty, what we're talking about here is, do you have the ability, if you are a compulsive overeater, to see that you are? And how do you see that? Well, let's take a look at the doctor's opinion. He talks about the physical allergy. He says, remember, any description of this malady that leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. 
I just realized how badly my hair is standing up. I just, anyway, he says, any uh, uh, description of this that leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. And he talks about the twist of the mind that we're looking for an effect. And that effect is that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating the food. And that food in that paragraph that says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The effect is so elusive that while many, we admit it's injurious, we cannot after time uh, differentiate between the true and the false. And he tells us in that paragraph that when I'm not eating, I'm restless, irritable, and discontent. And for me, I'm also jealous and angry and scared to death because that's my default mode, angry, selfish, jealous, scared to death, comparing myself to other people, always coming out on the short end. This is my default mode. And that's not good because what happens is the emotions will build up. The emotions will build up. And when those emotions build up, food becomes my solution to the problem. So we learn in the doctor's opinion. We have it illustrated beautifully in Bill's story. We have it further explained in there is a solution and we have it beautifully amplified in chapter three, more about alcoholism, that food was never the problem, that food was the solution to the problem. And that food being the solution to the problem, it became my go-to thing when things got scary, angry, jealous, everything really for me, I can't say for anybody else, for me is a product of my fear. And my fear comes from, if you're not sticking to my script, remember selfishness always leads the procession of defects. So selfish is the script. They use the word selfish a little differently in the 1930s than we would use it today. And that selfishness is, if only I could arrange the scenery, the ballet. So when you don't stick to my script, my brain is gonna go to, uh-oh, what else is gonna go wrong? Just like it did when the guys let me know about the uh, Amazon thing. Oh my God, if they stole from me this, what else is possible? Oh my God, and I had to really settle down. See, because my mind didn't just go to, oh my God, they're, they're, they went in my Amazon and all this other stuff and they want me to do this and the gift cards and all this other crap. Well. What else are they gonna do? Oh my God. Well, I have to just settle down. The bank and Amazon have already told me that anything I didn't charge, I will not be responsible for. But that's not good enough for my brain. What, are they gonna take my lamp here? Are they gonna take that? Are they gonna take my little notebook? What else are they gonna grab? So that's where my brain goes. So food became the solution to my problem, didn't it? So food was never the problem, it was the solution to the problem. And then we learn that we are gonna to have to depend on a higher power. And this is where a lot of people struggle. They're on that struggle bus because they have a concept of a higher power that is not, friend, not benevolent to them. And so this 
brings up a lot of struggle for many of us. And where you see people struggling in three, or you see people struggling in, in four, where they're really struggling is in two. So sponsors, when you have somebody that is struggling with certain things, always remember to go back, go back, go back. Whenever a sponsee is telling me they're struggling on a step, I always back up the truck and I back up the car and go back to another step that precedes that. Very, very important stuff. So we have this knowledge of step one and we have this knowledge of step two as being the, the only solution. But we have the, the, the knowledge in chapter three, more about alcoholism, that the disease is permanent, progressive and fatal. Permanent, progressive and fatal. Now, based on that information, can I honestly assess myself and say, Yes, based on that information and based on the fact that I have never been able to stay on a diet in my life, despite my most solemn, my most diligent, my most earnest attempts to do so, I've never been able to stay on a diet in my entire life. And even if I was abstinent at the time, my brain would obsess incessantly about food. What food was I going to eat when I got to a certain weight? What food was I going to eat when a certain event happened? What food was I going to eat when I got to a certain restaurant or a certain place? Some moment in time when I would be released from this edict of not eating and I was able to go crazy again. That is not the way a normal person thinks. A normal person doesn't do that. A normal person, a normal eater just doesn't think like that. And it says in the doctor's opinion, our alcoholic life seems the only normal one. In other words, to us, what we are doing and thinking seems normal and it's not. It's just not. So can I be honest with myself about the fact that I am a compulsive overeater? And if I am a compulsive overeater, the only solution that I'm going to have is to find a way to connect with a higher power. Now, the steps will connect me to a higher power. And Bill didn't set out to write 12 steps. He didn't think 12 sounded like a number that he wanted to hit. It just happened. What he tried to do was take the original six steps that they had been working out of the Oxford group and he tried to close some of the loopholes that these alcoholics were slipping through to go get drunk again. And that's why he ended up with 12. And because there were I believe 12 apostles. I'm a little Jewish boy from Devon Avenue. I don't know, but I believe there were 12 apostles and there were 12 tribes of Israel. And 12 is a very significant 
biblical number, he was very pleased, but they weren't pleased with him at first because the six steps had been working fine. And he, all of a sudden he's introducing 12 of them and they gave him a lot of pushback on the 12 and they didn't exactly like the 12. So he had to kind of calm them down and the fight was on and there were some compromises that they forced on him, but he did hold his ground and there are now obviously 12 steps. So as we embark on where we are at today, I just want to review two more things quickly. Number one, these steps came from certain places. Step one came from uh, Dr. Silkworth. William Duncan Silkworth gave Bill Wilson the information on step one. He gave him the physical allergy information and he gave him the twist of the mind uh, uh, information. So step one comes from William Duncan Silkworth. Step two through 12 come from the Oxford group movement. And the Oxford group movement was not concerned with alcoholism. They were concerned with people practicing first century Christianity to the best of their ability. And Bill Wilson, when he came to the cavalry mission in New York, he met Sam Shoemaker. And Sam Shoemaker was an Episcopalian minister. And you can hear Sam on podcasts. He spoke at the 1960 AA World Convention in San Diego, California. He has spoken many times. He's written books, but he has also spoken on AA uh, tapes. In those days, you didn't necessarily need to be an alcoholic to speak at an AA convention. Father Ed spoke and uh, Sam Shoemaker spoke, Lois spoke, she wasn't an alcoholic. So there were people that he would have up there, Bill, he'd have up there to speak. Now, what is, why is Sam Shoemaker so instrumental here? Sam Shoemaker told the boys that there are four impediments to God. And the first impediment is, what's an impediment? An impediment is something that stops or slows progress. Some impediments are speed bumps and some impediments are walls. So an impediment is something that slows or stops progress. And the first impediment to God that we as people face is a resentment that we will not let go of. And we're gonna talk about that this morning. That's step four. The second impediment is a secret that we will not tell. Does that mean I have to say in this forum to the 140 people here, here's my password and here's my uh, bank number and here's my, here's my cards. You can order anything you want here, go ahead. No, I don't have to do that. But when it comes to step five, I have to be honest and forthright and be be totally forthcoming to the person that's list, listening to my fifth step. I have to disclose these things about myself that not only have been 
killing me, but they've been affecting others. These are the things that have been holding me back and I need to disclose them to God and another human being. Very, very important, that's step five. Steps six and seven are a vicarious thrill that we will not, will not stop. That means stealing, gossiping, manipulating, nagging. These are vicarious thrills and steps six and seven deal with that because we wanna be rid of these defects of character. We can't continue to practice them. Now, of course, we're human beings, we're going to fail. No, we're not saints. But to the best of our ability, we stop the behavior by stopping the behavior. And then the fourth impediment is a restitution that you will not make. What is a restitution? A restitution is an amend. Amends is AA language. Amends is not Oxford group language. In Oxford group, they called it restitution. It means the same thing. To restitute means to restore. If I stole the dollar from you, I restore a dollar. If I've injured you or harmed you, I make amends to the very best of my ability, face to face, eyeball to eyeball, and this is how we do our amends. So the four impediments again are a resentment that you will not let go of, a secret that you will not tell, a vicarious thrill that you will not stop, and a restitution that you will not make. That is steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. And so the guts of our program come off of these impediments. Very important for some to know the etymology, the history, where does this stuff come from? And all of this leads us to a relationship with God and with ourselves and with our fellow human beings that will make us right with those entities, right with yourself, right with God, right with your fellow human being. So with that in mind, let's go to page 63. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at step three and we're going to blow the doors off some of the misconceptions of step three. First of all, in step three, there's no writing assignments that I give out. Now, if you're a sponsor or you are a sponsor or you're getting writing assignments from your sponsor, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying that's bad, but let's clear some things up. I don't give them. I don't want them. That's just for me. May not be right for you. We're not turning anything over to God in step three, nothing. All we're doing in step three is we are agreeing with the observations that we've made, that without this relationship with a higher power, we're not going to recover. So with that in mind, if someone has worked step three, they should be walking around with a clipboard and a notebook in their hands doing their fourth step. That's all step three is. It is the formal terms of surrender. And it says to ourselves, it says to God and to someone else, I've looked at the evidence based on the evidence that I've seen of a continuing worsening life, a continued struggle with food, a continued struggle with my defects, a continued struggle with my fellow human being, a continued struggle with God, fighting everything and everyone in my environment. I'm exhausted and I want to give my life and will to you, God. When I say I'm going to turn my will and my life, what does that mean? My will 
is my thinking. My life is my action. I'm going to say that again. My will is my thinking. <sighs> and my life is my action. So if I go to a lawyer on Monday, and I say, I've got this and I want this to go to my daughter and I've got this and I want this to go to OA and I've got this and I want this to go to my friend John Kay in California and I want this to go to Maria in Dublin, Ireland and all this other stuff. That is my will. That is my thinking on the day that I met with that lawyer. That's my thinking. Now, my life is my action. What do you know of me? What do you know of Harlan? You know what I do. You don't know what I'm thinking. You don't know what my thought process is most of the time. You can just judge me on what I'm thinking. And there's a very, very famous football coach who was from Chicago. And he used to scream at his players and say, what you're doing is screaming so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying because I don't want to hear lip service was his bottom line. I want to see action. I want to see action. So our will is our thinking. Our life is our action. And that's just the way it is. So let's go to page 63. Now, we are, we are at the words, we were now at step three. I'm on page 63 and the words, we were now at step three. Okay. Many of us said to our maker as we understood him, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Now let's understand. Let's stop right there. The very first thing I'm saying to God is I'm offering myself to you. How do I do that? by going ahead with the rest of the steps so I can have a spiritual awakening as the result of those steps. And when I offer myself to you, I want to offer myself to you in the best place I can be, which is in recovery. Remember last week on the bottom of 62, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his agents. He is the father. We are his children. I want to serve God in the purest, most maximum way I can serve him. On page 77, it's going to say our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. How do I be of maximum service? By being in recovery. They used to say to Bill in the Oxford group before the split, the split occurred really in 38. Uh, they started breaking away from the Oxford group and the Oxford groupers really after a while didn't even want them there. They started to split in New York. The, the split in Akron came later. We can go into that another time. We don't have the time to go into that. But Clarence Snyder's group up in Cleveland they were the very first actual AA meeting of just AA, nothing to do with the Oxford group because a couple of Roman Catholics came in and the Roman Catholics were not really welcome in the Oxford group. And the Catholics, the bishops were telling their members not to go to the Oxford group because it's a Protestant group. 
And these guys came in and they wanted to recover. And Clarence Snyder was their sponsor up in Cleveland. And he accelerated greatly the split from the Oxford group. And some of the Oxford groupers in Akron actually came up to Cleveland to protest this split from the Oxford groupers. But these Catholic guys, these Roman Catholic guys, they didn't, they didn't feel very comfortable in a Protestant environment. And this really accentuated, it, it was a catalyst for the split. Now, why am I talking about that? I haven't got a clue. Well, how did I get on that subject? I don't know. Oh, I know why. Okay, I got it. We want to be of maximum service. And this word maximum, I offer myself to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. We want to be of maximum effectiveness. And that's why that's the first line of the prayer. Notice that the prayer goes on to say, relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. What is the manifestations of self? The manifestations of self are the defects of character, fear, resentment, uh, selfishness, dishonesty. Those are the manifestations of self. Selfish, dishonest, resentful, and scared. Those are the manifestations of self. And while I'm in that self-will run riot, I cannot be as effective a servant of God. It is not possible that I'm going to be as effective a servant to God when I'm scared to death, angry as hell, comparing myself to others, angry about what this person is doing, what that person isn't doing, where this person's going, where this person's not going. Oh my God, the chatter in my head is, is amazing. It's just crazy making. Now I'm cease fighting anything or anyone. Take away my difficulties. Now here is something that is a little misunderstood at times, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. Take away my difficulties. Because I've had hundreds and hundreds of men and women through the years that told me in meetings, after meetings, before meetings, on Zoom, on the phone, on every format you can imagine, I'm not happy. Why not? I still have problems and I ask God to take away my difficulties. Problems and difficulties are two completely separate things. When he says, take away my difficulties, what he is talking about again is fear, anger, selfishness, dishonesty. The only group of people in the world that do not have problems are the dead and the unborn. We come into a world where things are constantly changing and constantly challenging us to rise above these personalities, to rise above these things. And if I'm in the food, I have very little chance of winning the situation. But if I'm not in the food and I turn my will and my life over to God in this kind of method, I will be okay. So difficulties and problems are two different things. Nobody promises us in this book 
that once having had a spiritual awakening, that we will be free of challenge. The Yiddish expression of the day is a zoigetis. What does a zoigetis mean? A zoigetis means it's always something. It's always something. When I was a little, little boy, little boy, I was addicted to the smell and the taste of the bubble gum that comes in the baseball card packages that you buy if you're a little boy. And I loved opening up a new package of baseball cards. Oh, I just loved it. And I would go to Rosen's Drugstore in Chicago on Devon Avenue. And if I got a quarter, I'd get five packages of baseball cards. And I loved them. Little did I know I should have saved them. I'd never have to work another day in my life. I used to put them in the spokes of my bicycle to create a little noise like a motorcycle going. And that's how we used to do it. And I would chew that gum. I would, I would, I would look like a freaking uh, uh, goat. I would look like a, 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 a cow chewing its cud. And what would happen is I would chew that gum. And for about three minutes, I don't know, five minutes, I was in ecstasy because I was getting blasted with all this sugar. And what would happen five minutes in, I'd be back saying, Ma, could I have a quarter? Ma, could I have a dime? Ma, could I have a dollar? Whatever it was. And one day she looked at me and she says, a zoi gaitis medu, my son. What that means is it's always something with you, my son. It's always something. You always want something. And so I had to say to myself, when I got into program, you know, my mother was right. She might've been crazy, but she wasn't stupid. It's always going to be something. So when he says, take away my difficulties, remember Bill went to writing school and they taught him there not to use the same words again and again and again and again. So instead of saying, take away my defects of character, he said, take away my difficulties. But nobody promised you or I a rose garden. Nobody said to us, oh, once you get into this program, not only are you going to be free of your compulsion to eat compulsively, compulsion to eat compulsively, your compulsion to kill yourself with food or starvation. Remember, just to take a second here, not everybody on this line or not everybody in the program is the compulsive overeater of my variety where I got fatter and fatter and fatter. Some of us are anorexics. Some of us are bulimics. I've told you before, I have a friend of mine lives in Northern California. She's like a movie star. You see her, you think, what the hell is she doing here? How in the world did she roll into the doors of OA? She looks like she just walked off the set of a movie. That's what she looks like. And I have another one uh, you know, in, in, in other areas, but this particular person is very, very tiny, very petite, very small. And you think, what the hell is she doing here? Believe me, if you got to know her like I've known her, she is gutter, back alley, dumpster, garbage can, gutter, compulsive overeater. All you'd see is the feet and the ankles and the shoes going up and down. She'd be head first in the dumpster, but she is 
also a restrictor. She's a bulimic. She is, she runs both ways, obese and back and this and that. So it, we don't all come in the same package, right? So when he says difficulties, when he says difficulties, he's not talking about your problems. He is talking about your defects of character. I want to make that very, very clear because a lot of people read this, say it, and they don't understand it. That victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. St. Francis of Assisi was a Jesuit Roman Catholic monk. And he said, preach the gospel. And if you must, use words. Preach the big book. I can't lift mine up right now because I'm working at it. Preach the big book. And if you must, use words. What are the three things you can do today? Because some of you are going to call me up today, tomorrow, the next day, or the next year, and you're going to say, my brother, sister, fill in the blank, my neighbor, my boss, my employee, whatever it is, my person of choice is eating themselves to death. What can I do for them? Well, what does it say here? You can show them what God did for you. Okay? Show them. Demonstrate. What does demonstrate mean? To, to teach through action. I can teach you how to change a flat tire. I can show you a film how to change a tire. But until we get under there and you get the damn tire changed, none of it means anything. You've got to get your hands dirty. You're going to have to get yourself on that hot pavement, that hot tar, and you're going to have to change the tire. That's just the way life is. May I do thy will always. By doing God's will, my life is just going to get better. I have to trust God. I have to trust him. We thought well before taking this step, making sure we were ready. Are you ready to do step four? You know, I'll tell you something that gets me cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. I hear people all the time uh, saying, I used to do the one, two, three waltz, the one, two, three waltz. Horse hockey, if you're doing step three and you're doing it in earnest, you're doing steps four through 12 every day for the rest of your life. If you do step three, you're walking around with a notebook and a clipboard in your hand doing step four. That's what step three is. So don't try to tell me that you're doing step three without doing four through 12. That's like saying, I'm going to go north and I'm headed south. It just doesn't make any sense unless I want to do a complete circumference of the earth, which would be quite inconvenient. So the bottom line is, is that the prayer can be whatever words you want. You don't like the male language here. You don't like the Protestant language here. You don't like the way it's worded. Change it. But here's what we must say to God before we do step four. God, I understand that I made a mockery of a life. That you were kind enough and benevolent enough and wonderful enough and loving enough to give me a life. Next time around though, could you at least give me some normal parent? No, I'm kidding. But okay, God, you were kind enough to give me a life. Now I'm gonna give my life back to you. 
I'm going to give my life back to you. That's what the whole step three prayer is. You gave me a life. I want to give my life back to you. I want my life to be a beacon to people that says, if you follow God and you do this work, you get to live a life beyond your wildest dreams. So you can word it any way you want to. Don't worry about the wording of it. Worry about the spirit. Don't worry. Think about the spirit of it. I didn't mean to say worry. That was a poor choice of words. Think about the spirit of what you're doing, not the words of what you're doing. Very, very important. So you can word it any way you want to. Let's continue. Oh, wait, we have a little more here to read. So that at last, we can at last abandon ourselves utterly to him. Abandon is a beautiful word here. Now there are homes, I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. I live in a bedroom community of Phoenix, Arizona. And in Scottsdale right now, because it's Saturday morning, there are families who are at synagogue and there are 8 zillion Jewish synagogues within a stone's throw of where I'm sitting. And there are people working and there are people shopping and there are people engaged in all manner of activities, but they're not home. And if I went to their house, I could easily tell that there is somebody who lives here or a family who lives here. Now, unfortunately, not as much in Scottsdale, but for sure in Phoenix, but they have them in Scottsdale too. Don't kid yourself. There are apartments and there are condos and there are homes in this area that are abandoned. There's no furniture in that house. There's no upkeep of the lawn. There's no upkeep of any of the property. There's no visible attention being given to the property. It's abandoned. That's the way we have to treat the defects of character and our former self. We must abandon them utterly. Any vestige of what I want to hang on to. I want to hang on to this. I want to hang on to this. No, 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 no. God's not going to take anything out of my hands that he wants me to have. He knows what I need. He understands how I am. He knows me. He created me. And every day he recreates me. And every day I say to him, when I get up, I'm lucky to be alive. There have been doctors from the time I was 17 years old that have been pronouncing my death sentence. They have been calling for my death. I broke my ankle in 1971. I was a student at Mather High School in Chicago, Illinois, in West Rogers Park. I broke my ankle and my mother took me to the doctor and they were putting the cast on me. Now my glasses only have one lens now because I had cataract corrective surgery, but I want you to just bear with me that they have to, I can still see Dr. Bernstein. He looked over his glasses and he screamed, you know, Virginia, my mother's name was Virginia. You don't hear that name anymore. I haven't heard anyone name that in 50 years, but anyway, you know, Virginia, 
He isn't, and he pulled his glasses off and he put them in his shirt and he says, he weighs over 300 pounds and he is 17 years old. He is gonna drop dead by the time he's 30 unless you do something. And my mother burst into tears. Now my mother was a compulsive overeater and I was a compulsive overeater. What do you think we did on the way home from there when I was in my cast and the cast was still warm? You know how you get a cast at first, it's warm and then it cools down. My cast was still freaking warm. We went for what? We went for ice cream. Doctors have been screaming at me and I'm 66 years old. I may drop dead tonight. I have no idea, but I want to know in my mind, in my heart that I can go to God and I did the best I could to be of maximum service. I want God to say to me at the end of it, you got off to a rocky start there, Harlan. Good job. You did a good job. Good job. And I want, I want him to recognize that. So I'm going to work my butt off. And I want to abandon myself to him. And every once in a while, like 20, 30 million times a day, I want to pick up my will because I know what's best for my daughter. And I know what's best for my ex-wife. And I know what's best for, for this person and that person. And why doesn't this person do this? And why doesn't that person do that? I don't know what's best for another person. I don't. Let's continue here. That's a lot for one paragraph, but that paragraph is very, very important. Let's go over it one more time for a minute here. What we are saying in this paragraph is, I want you to take away my defects of character. They're not going to go away permanently. I get that. But I want you to take them because I want to be an example of what life in your hands is is, is what you can do for a person. What is life like in your hands instead of my hands? And I want people to see it and some of them may want it and some will not. I have another friend of mine who's circling the drain. He lives up in the Bay Area. Brilliant, brilliant boy. International CPA of the highest magnitude. This is a brilliant boy. If I said to him, I want you to cut off your leg for me. He'd say, which one? And he's closer to 400 pounds than he is 300 pounds. And he's about five foot seven. And he can barely walk. And it breaks my heart. And he makes fun of OA. He thinks OA is the dumbest thing he's ever heard. You know what I can do for him? Recover, recover, and recover. That's it. That's all I can do for him. Page 63, we found it very desirable to take this spiritual step with an understanding person, such as our wife, best friend, or spiritual advisor. Notice he doesn't use the word sponsor. I'm going to get into that for just, a, oh, is it really? Oh my God. Every time I look up at the time, it's like 30 minutes later than what I think it is. He doesn't use the word sponsor. And the reason he doesn't use the word sponsor is the word sponsor meant something very, very different in the 1930s than it does now. In AA, you could not just walk into a meeting. 
they had a stigma of alcoholism then that is still there today, but not as horrible. And the laws are different and the world is different. If I owned a company, if I owned um, Milky Way Incorporated, I could legally fire you or not hire you because you are an alcoholic. I could literally fire you upon finding out that you are an alcoholic. And so people did not want anyone in the meeting that wasn't sponsored. And the sponsor in those days was somebody that vouched for you and said, yes, I drank with Maria. Maria and I were at an Irish pub and I know for a fact, I don't even know if Maria is here, I'm just assuming she is. I know for a fact that that Maria <clears throat> is a drunk. And believe me, I've gotten drunk with her enough times. She's an alcoholic. Okay, Maria, uh, Joe vouched for you, you can come in. You couldn't just walk into an AA meeting in those days unless you could convince them that you were an alcoholic. They were afraid because if you were there for any other reason, it could go very badly for them, especially if you were a member of the press or you were whatever you were, it could go very badly. But that's why he does not use the word sponsor. The word sponsor does not appear in the first 164 pages. It was Clarence Snyder, who I've talked about already today, and Clarence Snyder up in Cleveland in the time after the book came out. This would be, the book came out April 10th, 1939. So this would be April, May, June of 39. He started the teaching to the sponsee using the book. He turned questions into statements and statements into questions. And that's the method that he used to teach. But this is why the word sponsor is not used. I know that is a long explanation, but I want to make sure you understand it because we go into detail here. That's what this is for. And that's why the word sponsor is not there. But it, I'm on page 63. But it is better to meet God alone than with one who might misunderstand. I do not have a great desire to try to explain this or justify it to people who are not part of this way of life. I don't explain. I don't go into detail about it. I just don't. I have a relationship with God. I have a relationship with God that starts in the morning. The very first thing I do uh, is I do step 11. Before I do anything, I take step 11. And step 11 is how I begin my day. Why? Because that's what I'm supposed to do. I don't start with any other activity. Any Now, if someone calls, I'll generally take their call and then I'll go back to step 11. I, I let 12 kind of overwhelm 11. But generally speaking, my other eye is itching and I don't know why. I can't figure it out. But anyway, step 11 is the very first thing I do in the morning. And that gets me right. It gets me to where I feel good. And I do my reading and I listen on audio to uh, St. Francis. And I listen to the acceptance chapter on audio. And I take some other things into my heart. And now I'm ready to begin my day. I'm not going to sit and explain that to my friends who would never understand that in a million years. 
I'm not even going to try. It's okay. You don't understand. I love dogs. Some people don't like dogs. I love dogs. I'm not going to sit and explain why I love dogs to a person who, who hates them. It's not, I'm not going to do it. It's a waste of time and it, it, it's fruitless. The wording was, of course, quite optional, so long as we express the idea. Again, if the wording in the step three prayer is not the wording that you would choose, change it for the love of God, change it. Stop saying a prayer that offends you. Stop saying a prayer that you really don't like saying. Change it, write your own. He's telling you it's perfectly okay. Voicing it without reservation. Voicing it without reservation is an instruction. This is a textbook. What reservation would I have? Are there things I want to hang on to? Do I think God is wonderful when it comes to business, but not so wonderful when it comes to romance? Do I think God is great when it comes to me learning how to walk, but not so good when it comes to me learning how to... Uh, juggle tennis balls. That's agnosticism. That means I'm not sure there is or is not a God. That's agnostic. I have to give God everything or I'm either is or he isn't. It's very, very important that I keep that posture. It's very important without reservation. What area of my life is so appealing that I want to hang on to it, doing it my way? Am I crazy? Am I nuts? My will sucks. My way blows chunks. It just blows chunks. Voicing it without reservation. This was only a beginning because taking step three is not the end of it. It's the beginning. Step three is a decision and a beginning. A decision to do what? the rest of the steps every day for the rest of your life. A, a beginning of what? A beginning of action. It's a beginning and a decision. Though if honestly and humbly made an effect, sometimes a very great one was felt at once. And every time I come to the end of that paragraph, I remember Bill Dotson. Many of you have seen the very, very famous painting, The Man on the Bed. And the man on the bed doesn't look like any of them. The, the, <laughs> the person who painted it was terrible. It doesn't look like Bill Dotson. It doesn't look like Bill Wilson. And it sure as hell doesn't look like Dr. Bob. But anyway, it's the man on the bed. Bill and Bob are sitting there and they're ministering to Bill Dotson. And that's the famous painting, The Man on the Bed. Very, very famous. There's a copy of it. I'm wearing my Stepping Stones t-shirt today, and I have my Stepping Stones jacket on yesterday because it was cold here yesterday for us. But anyway, when you go to Stepping Stones, you see the original copy or the original painting of The Man on the Bed. Everything else is a copy, but the, the original is there. <sighs> and it was painted in the 1940s. And the man who did it, I name escapes me. I'm sorry about that. But, uh, and there are many, many copies of it. But Bill Dotson said that when he took step three and he knew that he could abandon himself to God, 
It was like the weight of the world was off his shoulders. He felt like I no longer have to figure out a way of beating my alcoholism and I can't beat it. And now I know I don't have to. I don't have to do it anymore. Now, how much time should you leave between step three and four? Next, now. You do not leave any time. Step four is a couple, three hours tops. Four hours is like unimaginable to me. There's nothing here that you don't know the answer to. There's nothing here that you, you should find at all difficult. Next, not in a day, not in a week, not in a month. Next, we launched out on a vigorous course of course of vigorous action. And what is that action? Step four. The first step of which, wait a minute here, I'm not on the first step, I'm on the fourth step. This is the first of the action steps. Steps one, two, and three are not action steps. One is a conclusion of the mind. I am or I am not a compulsive overeater. Step two is a conclusion of the mind. I've come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, or I have not come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Step three, I'm gonna turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him. That is another decision that I am making. It's a beginning and a decision, but the very first action step is number four. Next, we launched out on a course of vigorous action, the first step of which is a personal house cleaning, which many of us have never attempted. How many of you in your prior life did you sit down and analyze who I'm angry at or why I'm scared or who I hurt? You, didn't, you don't do that. And one of the things we need to do, let's find out what we're working with. Let's find out the true condition of our lives as we're living it now. Let's pop open the hood. Let's not be afraid to take a look. And why do people get scared of this step? They think that people are going to judge them or they think that, oh my God, I did this or I did that. Let me just tell you something. Honestly, you're not that different from the rest of us. You're really not. Short of first degree murder, I have heard it all. I have heard everything imaginable under the sun in the fifth step. You are just not so different as you think you are. But remember the three actions of the ego. And the three actions of the ego are make me right, make me feel good right now, and make me different from everybody else. Make me right, make me different, make me feel good right now. And in the tempestuous self-serving ego, that demonic destructive ego, we are being fed information that says we are either better than everybody else or worse than everybody else or a combination of both, sometimes worse and sometimes better. So what we have is we're blowing back against that demonic destructive ego. And the ultimate goal is to become another bozo on the bus. For me, I really, really never wanted to just be another bozo on the bus, but I am another bozo on the bus. Though our decision, step three, was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once. So we're told next and at once. Does that mean we're gonna wait a week or a month or a year before starting step four? 
Anybody that tells you that you need to wait a certain amount of time before doing step four, in my opinion, is that's not justifiable in the big book. You can, you can tell people anything you want. You can listen to anything people tell you. But if the big book is the ultimate authority as the textbook of our program of recovery, then the big book says you do it right now, followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. What are we hanging on to here? We're hanging on to things that have been blocking us from what? From recovery, from God, from freedom. Why would I want to hang on to that? Because my ego says I should. My ego does not want me to succumb to a life that is God-driven. My ego wants me to live a life that is ego-driven. The ego resurrects itself beautifully. If every organ of the body resurrected itself as the ego did, we would live to be 5,000 years old. We'd outlive Methuselah. Our liquor was but a symptom. Remember, we've said this a million times. We've stated this ad nauseum that the liquor, the food was not the problem. The food was the solution to the problem. So we had to get down to causes and conditions. Now let's take a look at the next paragraph. And Maria, if you're out there, we're probably gonna run a little late because I wanna cover the next paragraph before we go to questions and answers. I don't know whether you're there or not. I assume you are. Therefore, I'm on page 64, first full paragraph. Therefore, we started on a personal inventory. This was step four. Now in this inventory, we're going to uncover, discover, and discard. We're gonna uncover the things that have been blocking us. We're gonna uncover the patterns of our resentments, the patterns of our fears, the patterns of our harmful behaviors. We're gonna discover the truth about ourselves. There's nothing to be afraid of here. The truth of the matter is I was dying when I came in here. The truth of the matter is every other human being on the face of, these, of this earth has defects of character. Every one of them has fear, anger, selfishness, and dishonesty. Every single one of them. And so I'm going to, I'm going to embark on a process of uncover, discover, and discard. Uncover, discover, and discard. A business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. So we have to take an inventory or we're going to go broke. Taking a commercial inventory is a fact-finding and fact-facing process. We're going to have, it is an inventory to discover the truth about the stock in trade. One object is to disclose damaged or unsaleable goods, to get rid of them promptly and without regret. My dishonesty, my fear, my anger, they have been killing me and they have been driving me into the food from the day I was born. What am I hanging on to? I'm hanging on to the vestiges of a destructive demonic ego. And that ego says, you can't give up your lying. If you give up your lying, who's going to like you? If you give up your lying, who's going who's gonna to pay attention to you? If you give up your lying, what are you going to be? How are you going to function in the business world 
with honesty? How are you going to function in the romantic world with honesty? How are you going to function in any kind of venue with honesty? And the ego says, you won't be able to. So don't tell anybody about this, but we're going to continue lying. We're going to continue eating. We're going to continue manipulating. We're going to continue gossiping. And we're going to continue living life on our terms, but we're going to lie about it. That doesn't work. It, it just, it, trust me, it does not work. If the owner of a business is to be successful, he cannot fool himself about values. And when we see that, what we're seeing is, I cannot fool myself any longer. I cannot say to myself any longer that the lying and the manipulating worked. They cause me guilt. They cause me shame. They cause me regret. And that guilt, that shame, and that regret, the emotions of those things will burst to the surface. And as those things burst to the surface, my brain will say, eat a Milky Way bar. Notice my brain doesn't say eat some steamed broccoli. It says, eat a Milky Way bar and chase it down with a railroad car full of Doritos. And as the guilt and the shame and the fear and the uncertainty of life, my selfishness, burst up, what is going to happen every single time is I am going to have to soothe that. And in soothing it, I'm going to soothe it with the most effective, familiar way I know how. And that is with food. So the food is going to become the solution to my problem. So no longer are we saying that food is the problem. It's the solution. Now we're getting to causes and conditions. What has been causing these emotions to rise up so violently within me? The thing that has been causing these emotions to rise up so violently within me is the absolute unabated method, the absolute unabated method that they have of driving me into the food must be looked at because there are three A's of solving a problem. I must be aware of the problem. I must accept the problem. I must take action. The three A's of solving a problem. I have to be aware of the problem. The doctor's opinion and Bill's story, chapter two, there is a solution and more about alcoholism. Make me aware of the problem. Chapter four, we agnostics makes me aware of the solution. Now I have to take action, action uh, awareness, acceptance. I have to accept that's where the honesty comes from. Accept that honesty is very important. Now I have to take action. And the action is going to be to identify these emotionally charged defects of character and the patterns that they go through my brain and my heart that have been causing my demise since the day I was born. We're going to look at these things. The first thing the mechanic has to do when they fix your car is they've got to open the hood. They got to see what they're, what they're dealing with. All we're doing is popping open the hood. Nobody is here going, nah, 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 you did this. Nobody's saying that. But this action is going to emancipate me from the bondage 
that these defects of character have been driving me into the food since the day I was born. We're opening up the hood. Let's end today. We're going to pick it up next Saturday, but I want to remind you again, being 12-12, and it was really...